Hello, Dental Online Trainers. Dr. Dennis Hartley back with you today for another ShareCast. I'm really excited to spend the time with you today as I get to know a guy that I've I've just known, seen so many times, kind of know, but never really had a chance to really talk to. But a guy I admired so much for his incredible dentistry and his dedication to dentistry. Today, I get to speak with Dr. Greg Kinzer. For those who you don't know Greg, he's a prosthodontist from the University of Washington. He practices in Seattle, and he actually took over for Dr. Frank Spear in his practice. And Greg got to practice a bit with Frank, and we talk a little bit about that. Greg is the Director of Curriculum and Campus Education at Spear Education. He is a co-founder of Aesthetics by Design Dental Laboratory with Dr. Bob Winter. And he continues his private practice in the city of Seattle. During part one of my interview, Greg shares with us how he found his way into dentistry and what led him away from orthodontics, thank God. <laughs> no, just kidding. And into prosthodontics instead. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Greg talks about his family's background with education, teaching, and how it impacted him as a young person and in his career, and especially as he's sort of taken over this higher level role at the Spear Center. Uh, we really get to talk a lot about mentorship and working with experts to improve and better our dental skills. So kick back and relax, and unless you're driving, then pay attention to the road. Uh, but enjoy this first part of our interview with Dr. Greg Kinzer. Hello, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley with you with another ShareCast episode today. I have the great fortune of hanging out with a doctor named Dr. Greg Kinzer. If you don't know Greg Kinzer, time to climb out from underneath your rock. Greg is, uh, he's pretty big at the Spear Institute. I think uh, we'll talk about that, but he's got a pretty significant role there. And Greg is doing some just tremendous dentistry that if you haven't seen his stuff, you need to see it because he's doing some super cool stuff. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Greg, and then I'll bring him on in. So, Greg, you grew up in the state of Washington. You're a Husky, right? You went to UW undergrad. Right. I brought my Michigan mug just for this. <laughs> sorry, for, sorry for the whooping we gave you this uh, this fall. We've had some issues. I'm sorry for sorry for your season that you're having. So, if you're a football fan, I'll try not to, to keep bringing that up. We're moving in the right uh, direction <laughs> by firing the coach. Yeah, well, you know, you had to start somewhere. So there you go. Uh, you got your DDS degree in 95, and then you got your PROS certificate in 98. What I think really going to be interesting to talk about is Greg took over Frank Spears practice in Seattle, and then he's been on board of the Spear Institute for how long, Greg? How long have you been? been I, since, I, since I came into practice. So it was, it was a Seattle Institute back in, you know, nine in 95, 98, it was Seattle Institute. And then it went to Spear Education in uh, 2008. So it was uh, just a name change and a move of location. So I've been kind of with him ever since I came into practice, which was 98. Well, we'll talk more about stuff, but you're members of all the significant organizations. I've gotten to see Greg through the American Academy of Restorative Dentistry, but he's he's part of multiple, multiple organizations that are all pretty super high caliber and stuff. He's got lots of accolades. So if you want to learn more about how cool Greg is and all his uh, <laughs> all, all his accolades, you're just going to have to Google him and you'll see plenty of stuff. Besides that, Greg is uh, married to Jill and they have six kids between them. And so that's a that's a shitload of uh, of family members. So God bless you, <laughs> the Brady uh, bunch. 
Yeah, right. Um, so I, we'll talk about that too, because I think all of us in dentistry who are trying to do dentistry at, at a higher level or a more significant level, we're all challenged with this balancing between having a practice, having a family, and trying to manage all that stuff. So we, we definitely want to talk about that. So Greg, thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Hey, Dennis, thanks for having me. I, I'm actually excited to be here and excited to spend a little time uh, and ch chat with you a little bit. So thank you. Perfect. So Greg, I always start out, I what's interesting to me is where people started in dentistry. And so tell, where, where'd you grow up in, in Washington? What area? I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington. Have, you heard, have you heard of that? Yeah, that's what is, is Washington State in Walla Walla? Yes. WSU? Uh, no, no, no. So Whitman College is in Walla Walla. WSU is in Pullman. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So what's Walla Walla like as a, as a kid? As a kid, it's it's agricultural town. It's small. It's 25,000 people. Hard to get into trouble. I mean, you can, but you got to work at it. And so it was, you know, lots of sports, uh, just a quiet kind of uh, a quiet farming town is what it kind of is. It's now, changed it's, now. It's better now. In what way is it better? It's it wine. If you're a wine connoisseur, uh, Walla Walla is the big area for I, I would say the best wines coming out of Washington, the grapes are all in, in Walla Walla. So it's really known. It's a destination spot now. It's got great little uh, hotels, bed and breakfasts, restaurants. It's a really kind of a neat place to go and visit now. But that wasn't the case when I was there. When I was there, it was all about onions, Walla Walla sweet onions. That was the big, that was our big ticket. That's I, I actually recall that now. So if we <laughs> want to go to Walla Walla, can we count on you as our tour guide? My parents are there and they would be more than happy to show you around. Uh, and they're kind of well-versed in the whole wine piece. So yeah, you got built-in uh, hosts. Fantastic. So <laughs> what, what did your folks do? Like, how'd you, why were you guys in Walla Walla? My dad grew up in Walla Walla and has lived there his entire life. And he was uh, in education. He was a teacher and then uh, evolved into a middle school principal. That's where he gotcha. spent his career. What did he teach? He was an English uh, English teacher, and then he was a you know coach in various uh, accolades of sports. So English, though. So. And do you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister who's also in education, and then a younger brother. So I'm the mi I'm so, middle child. Middle child. So there are middle child attributes. So um, <laughs> for sure, right? Yeah, for sure. Tell me how you're like a middle child, and, and how are you not like a middle child? I think I'm like a middle child and that the middle child is overlooked. If you read all of the, the reports on middle children, right? You're not the right. first, you're not the last. And so you end up having to try to push to areas to get yourself noticed. That's the typical middle child that you try to overachieve. So at least you get some response. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, that's, that would be me. All right. Fair enough. I wondered, because uh, I don't know you very well, Greg. I know you from a distance. I've sort of been a stalker, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty shy guy. You know, I'm, I'm good when I can have a cocktail with me and I can sit and talk to people, but I'm not the person to come up and just introduce myself and say, hey, um, you know, I'm an admirer. Um, so this is my format for doing that. So <laughs> yeah, I'll I tell you what, I am, the, I am exactly the same as you. When I was, you know, in high school and had to do a presentation for class, it was like the most fear I could ever imagine talking in front of people. And even just, I was like the wallflower at a party. I'd be just the guy in the corner. So yeah, you and I maybe are very similar in that regard. Yeah. I'm the youngest of the kids, but I found my way of not getting into trouble was to like, just stay away from the action. Cause my brothers were <laughs> pain in the asses to my parents. So I was just like, I do not want any attention because 
if this is getting attention, I don't want it. <laughs> That's great. So, so I hid from attention. I want to read something to you. And uh, this is uh, from, I believe, a, a former employee of yours. And I, I got this off the line. Uh, Dr. Kinzer is an absolutely incredible prosthodontist. He's approachable, down-to-earth, kind, compassionate, and detailed. Dr. Kinzer was an incredible employer, and I really enjoyed the time I spent working with him directly. He's dedicated to excellence and to the success and happiness of all his patients. His commitment to excellence is evident in all he does. Dr. Kinzer is incredibly hardworking, accommodating, and authentic. What, what, what do those words mean to you when you hear that? Wow, I, I, I don't know who wrote that. I've never heard, I've never uh, read that. It's very sweet. I hope that that's all true. I hope that that holds true because I have always held myself at that level interpersonal practice, patients, staff. So yeah, it's very, that's it's very nicely written. There's a book by Leah Coca called Where Are All the Leaders or Where Have the Leaders Gone? I got to tell you in the dental community, the people that I get to meet and chat with, I, there's plenty of them here. So obviously uh, one of the more challenging things in being a dentist is being a strong leader also, and this speaks volume. So it was it was kind of neat reading that. And I, I hope you enjoyed that because yeah, I, uh, yeah. I had not heard that before. So thank you. That was from Stacy. Oh, wow. AKA Joe Kidzer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, then she should have embellished if it was Jill. <laughs> Actually, I think it says Dr. Jeffrey Rouse is the one who's the. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So tell me so you're a kid in this, uh, in Walla Walla. Yeah, you're playing a lot of sports. Your dad was uh, was a coach. You were you were a good student, I presume, because your, your dad's in academics. Was your mom, was she homemaker was she's a teacher or what did she do yes to both she was a uh, preschool preschool uh, kindergarten teacher but then when uh, when you know we they started having kids she became a homemaker and then when we got back into school and she had her days she would go back and teach again so i kind of come from from a uh, large family of educators cuz my mother is an identical twin and her identical twin was a teacher and my aunt's husband although we just passed away, was a principal. So now we have two twins that are teachers marrying two gentlemen that were educators and became principals. So like the similarities in our families are, are really quite comical because most of their, you know, my cousins are, are teachers as well. My sister's a teacher. My brother got his degree in education, but never really went into it. So I was kind of surrounded by educators in my childhood and in, even into my adult life. You know, I was going to ask this later on, but uh, just to stay on the subject then. So how much influence did you have with how you teach from watching or being around your parents as teachers and stuff? Did that influence it, you much? Well, I'll tell you what, it's interesting because I did not even think about going into teaching. I, I my brother, you know, and my sister went to the same school as my parents. So like everybody kind of follows a similar path. You're influenced by people that come before you. And for whatever reason, I, I did not want to be in that. I didn't, I didn't go to the same school. I went to the University of Washington and I didn't go into education. I went into dentistry. So I, I kind of was the black sheep in that regard. And it wasn't until I got into graduate school where you have to put together you know, lectures and you have to become an educator. That's part of a, that's a class that I started to now recollect that, Hey, I, I come from a lineage of people that actually did this. And so all of a sudden yeah. I, I wasn't the black sheep anymore. I was, maybe I was brought back in. They let you in for Thanksgiving dinner. They let, they let me back in. They, they actually let me sleep in the house. But what's really interesting, Dennis, is my parents, when we started doing things at Spear Education, it's quite a phenomenal place down there. And I would say I'm going down there and I'm teaching a class. 
And you can imagine that in their mind, a class would be a classroom that they're used to teaching when they were working. And so there was a winter where I said, why don't you guys come down? You know, the weather's really terrible where you are. Come to Arizona and and we can hang out and and you can come to the center and you can actually see me teach a class. And they're like, oh, this is fantastic. And they got down there and all of a sudden their vision was completely changed because now it's a 300 person auditorium and there's their son down presenting. And so it was, it was an eye-opening experience, but this then allowed my father to comment on my speaking style, right? Being, (laughs) being an English teacher and teaching, you know, speech and these types of things, I was expecting him to say, well, you know, you use the word, um, X amount of times and you, you you stumbled and you, uh, but he was very complimentary on, on my style and my choice of words. And then using, uh, you know, words correctly further versus farther, that type of idea. So he's like, yeah, he was, it was very nice to see his appreciation for what I've done, even though that wasn't kind of my initial goal to be an educator. Were you were you stressed with your parents in the audience? Were you sort of in the back of your mind thinking, watch watch uh, watch my vernacular, make sure that I'm like uh, using the proper wordage? Not at all. In fact, this is a funny story. This kind of goes back, maybe imprinting on why I became a dentist. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story, and I actually told this story in front of the entire auditorium with my parents there. Okay, so okay, the story yes, is, I'm a little kid, and I'm probably let's say seven years old. All right. So I have, you know, deciduous teeth in actually I wouldn't be, I would maybe, I was probably below seven and we had a big Oak tree with a, with like a homemade wooden swing, like a disc with a, with a rope. Sure. Right. Yeah. So it got boring to swing on it, but then it became more fun to throw it at each other. <laughs> so I think my brother and I are out there and, and I got hit in the mouth with it. Right. And one of my deciduous yeah, of teeth turned dark. Okay. So now my father who has no ties with dentistry whatsoever, sees a dark tooth and he says, oh, we, that needs to come out. So he decides he's going to pull it out. Okay. Now, how hard can that be? This is, this is not neuroscience. It's, it's not ready to come out. So, you know, we know how hard it is to pull a tooth out. It's like an art form to pull a tooth out. That's not ready to come out. So he goes to the garage and gets like, you know, his newest pair of pliers, but seriously from the garage set of pliers. And, uh, and he comes back and he, and he has me on the couch and I, I, I kind of probably disassociated <laughs> from it, but I have a vision from above. I'm lying back. He's got his pliers. He's got his, I think at one point he might've had his knee <laughs> on my chest. Right. <laughs> But once he started, he couldn't stop. Like you couldn't say, well, I'm going to tap out now. And he got it out. Right. So, you know, years later, I became a dentist uh, <laughs> and maybe just maybe that was the influence. But I told that story in front of the oh. entire audience that my dad pulled the two in and people at the break were like going up to him going, well, that didn't really happen. Like that didn't happen. <laughs> and, he, and my dad had to go, yeah, it actually, I actually did that. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you served your father back, like doing dentistry on him without any anesthetics? Just I haven't. Piece of his own magic? I haven't. But you know what? He gave me the set of pliers. Within the last five years, he gave me the set of pliers and I keep them in my, on my lab bench because they, are, they aren't like the regular pliers you keep in your garage. They're like small. And so I actually use them to like 
hold on to things. So I actually use the tool that maybe got me into dentistry on yeah. a weekly basis. Is that good for grabbing the children's ears when they're not like, paying attention so you can grab them? <laughs> exactly. I just show it to them. <laughs> it's a parenting tool. <laughs> oh, school of hard knocks. That's right. <laughs> that's right. All right. So getting back, uh, you're growing up in Walla Walla. You're, you're this kid. Your parents are in education. How old were you when you figured out you wanted to be a dentist or was that something that happened much longer or later? I didn't know going into college. First year of college, I didn't know. What I went back to is on my little half block, my next door neighbor was a dentist. His name was Jim Parrish. And he had really small children that we kind of befriended, but we also, I befriended him. And I would go into his office because he was just a super nice, compassionate man. And I would just kind of watch what he did. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And then halfway down the block was another dentist. And on the end of the block was an orthodontist. And I, I took care of this lawn for the orthodontist. And, and this guy was doing well. And he had like a little stream through his, his yard and he had horses and like this guy. And I said, what, is, what does he do? What's that guy do? He's an yeah, orthodontist. Yeah. So first year of college, didn't, you know, I took business classes and it didn't speak to me. And I thought, you know, dentistry, uh, in fact, I wanted to go in to be an orthodontist. That was my freshman year of college. Don't know what I'm going to do. By the end, I'm like, I got to do something dentistry because I was influenced heavily by my neighbor and, and these other people. So, but my whole goal was to be an orthodontist. That was my whole impetus to, to go into to dentistry. And then when you saw that they actually don't do anything, then you said, I don't really want to do that. No, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I even thought about it in grad school. I thought about finishing pros and going back and doing ortho. So walk me through. So you, UW undergrad, so Seattle, UW Seattle. Yep. So you're a Husky. Yep. True Husky. So, so when you were an undergrad, you sort of set your sights early on going to dental school, which I had the same experience at Michigan. And I, I was fortunate and relieved that I knew what I wanted to do because I knew a bunch of people who didn't know why they were in college. And I saw that they, it's, they suffered from that because they didn't have direction. For me, it was easy. I said, I want to be a dentist. These are the grades I got to get. These are the classes I got to take. Yep. And, and I, was, I was grateful for that. Did you feel the same way? I, I totally agree. I think that you have to, it's, it's a lot of work to push yourself to do something. So to have that insight of here's what I want to do, the goals are set. Now it's just get it done. Yeah. Without having those goals, I think it would be tough. You're just going through the motions. It would be for me. I'm I'm just a goal centric person. So if I don't have that set out in front of me, it's hard for me to sort of go yep. through day by day if I don't have that out. So yeah. What was it like going to dental school the first day? What do you remember? You know what I remember? So I, since I went to dental school at the UW as well. In fact, I did all all my eleven years of training at the University of Washington. The first day of dental school, one of my undergraduate fraternity brothers in my class was in my dental school class. He's an oral surgeon now. So we went from undergrad into dental school and, and we're really close friends. And now there's all these other people and we just kind of did our own thing. So I kind of disassociated from everybody else. And, and what was interesting for me, in fact, the entire first quarter is since I went to undergrad there, a lot of your first quarter of dental school is your basic sciences, right? You're doing mm -hmm. your histo and your biochem. Well, I just took all those classes from the exact same people that are teaching them. Oh, so, so some of them, because of my grade that I had in their class just said, okay, you're, you don't have to take it. And other ones made me take a test. So my first quarter of dental school, I had six credits. I took two classes. I took gross anatomy and I took wow. dental ethics. Wow. How I was mean, that dental ethics course? 
It, that was a pretty, <laughs> took a lot of time, did it? It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it was a rude awakening going into the winter quarter, but man, I had so much fun the first quarter of dental school because it was like, I was still back in the frat with less to do. It was wow. just, I was having a great time. <laughs> Were, did you go after three years or four years for dental uh, school? Four years. You did four years? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did Michigan undergrad and I did Michigan dental school and I didn't have the same experience. When I, once I got into dental school, we had completely different uh, professors for all our courses and stuff. So I just got my ass kicked by different people this time. instead said <laughs> the first time around. So it was a whole new experience, but it was what, what fascinated me, what, and maybe I had the same experience going to, you know, a major college and then having the dental school there. I was shocked by how many students, other classmates were coming from like really small schools and and there were super bright people and, you know, like Saginaw Valley and, and Central Michigan and all sorts of, you know, crazy schools, Case Western. And I'm like, because I was sort of right in Michigan. And then also it was like my first exposure to people being beyond my little, my little cultural wheel there. I don't know. Did, right. I, did you have that, that same experience? Yeah, it's the, the diversity of the, the incoming class was amazing. Males, females from all over the country in big schools, small schools, different experiences, was an engineer and then came back to dental school. So I was like blown away that here's me in my own little world, focusing on this one thing. And other people have, you know, they have families and they have children and they have previous professions. I'm like, what what have I been doing? Like I haven't done any of those things. So it it was an eye-opening experience when you start to have people that want to do what you want to do but they've already had a whole complete life of other things that you haven't even done yet. So it made me like take a step back and go, really, what, what have I been doing in this first part of my life? Yeah, I, I was I was amazed by the number of people who were married and had kids and how they were sort of managing all that. And yeah. uh, look, I I was just I was just trying to worry about myself, and I couldn't even imagine <laughs> worrying about little kids and having a spouse and manage all that. I couldn't even hold a girlfriend for crying out loud. I was so it, self. It's it's amazing. I, yeah, I'm right. I, I I could I could barely just control my own life. I couldn't imagine having that other piece. Yeah. So kudos to all you out there who have these relationships and these families. And God bless you. I I was far too immature to be able to balance all that stuff I <laughs> still to today uh, but, <laughs> but that's a whole nother story so tell me about dental school how how was it for you was it once you started getting into it was it did you just sort of rock and roll was it uh, streamlined uh, uh, yeah I enjoyed it uh, I really enjoyed the clinical aspect when we got through the didactic stuff I really enjoyed the clinical piece and even even the didactic pieces that revolved around clinical like materials and things I really enjoyed that and again, it was, to me, it was a lot of work because I had my sights set on going into ortho. And from what I understood, it's fairly competitive. So you need to have, you know, great marks in all of your classes and you need to be up at the top of your class. And and so luckily for me, the buddy of mine who was an undergrad with me had the same drive. He wanted to go into oral surgery. So he and I motivated each other to, you know, we would, we lived off campus, we'd drive back, eat dinner, and then we come back to study at the library until the library closed. And that was like every night. And we didn't want to go, but one of us would force the other to go. And all of a sudden we just kind of had our routine. So the, the book learning part of it took a lot of our time and energy, but then the clinic I thought was fun. And I hate to say it, but I played more golf ever 
in the third and fourth year of dental school. Cause I just kind of rifled through my requirements, got bigger requirements. Like they gave me cooler things to do. It was like, I had a friend who was into golf and he goes, Oh, my patient canceled. And I said, hold on, I'm going to cancel mine. And let's go golf. <laughs> so, so we, we played a lot of golf during those two years. What do you attribute that to sort of your natural, I don't know, ability, natural instinct for I, dentistry? I honestly think I have, I have decent hands and I think that my hands were developed early. So I told you my father was an educator, but in the summers, right? They don't have, they don't have school. So he, he had always been a painter, house painter, indoor, outdoor, new construction. And so my brother and I automatically are his worker bees. That was our summer job. And uh, I was always the cut man. So I was always the fine detail, cutting around the windowsills, those types of things. So that was, and I did it, I did it really well and I was fairly quick at it. So that motor hand-eye coordination piece was always something that was easy for me. And I think dentistry is, is also a lot of hand-eye coordination and artisticness. And so for me, that's like, that's the the stuff I love. And I I think I love it. Maybe I love it because I've always excelled at it. So you like the things that you're, you're good at and and you kind of avoid the things that you're not. So. Oh, it's interesting. So, you know, how you develop those skills early on. And I I was just talking to somebody and they were talking about how we are from age zero to six is going to sort of set the tone for us in many ways for the rest of our lives. But you think about skills like that, that you pick up and you just get better and better and better. And then how that transfers into something that you would not even think would be, you know, related to it. Maybe that's why you were interested in going into dentistry, knowing how much you enjoyed doing that stuff. I used to love to draw back in like in grade school and even middle school. I used to love to draw. And then I quit. I don't draw anymore. I'm not at all. And I quit because I couldn't ever make it perfect. It wasn't ever good enough. There was always something that I wanted to change. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I was killing myself because it wasn't good. It wasn't good enough for me. Even though people look at it and go, it's fantastic. It's like, nope. And, and so the artistic outlet, I think dentistry provides for us. People don't understand yeah, yeah. that it's not just, you're not a mechanical dentist. You're also an artistic eye and being able to create things. And so I think dentistry for me was a really good fit in those two regards, the artistic piece and the science piece and the precision. Those are all things that really speak to me. Do you remember your first patient that you treated in dental school? I do. I'm surprised I got through it. It just took me forever. It was a DO amalgam and I would love to go back and, and look at it, you know, today. Would you really? Would you really? <laughs> are you just I would. That? You know, you don't know where you are until you go back and see where you've come from. And, and well, so that is very true. It's, it's one of the things that I thought was interesting about, let's say our graduate program at the University of Washington, PROS, as part of your entry level interview, you have to do diagnostic waxing. That was part of the process. You had to wax a three unit bridge, a central and like a molar and you it's timed. So you have X amount of time to wax these things. Then what they did unbeknownst to us, but what they did is they kept them. And I used to do lab work, right? That's how I, I, I kind of helped put myself through dental school by doing lab work for dentists on the outside and even doing some for some of the students in the, in my class. So I thought I got this right. And yeah. I, I thought I crushed, crushed this wax up. When you go get ready to, to graduate, they show you your initial waxing oh, right? wow. because, because part of the challenge as a grad student is you never think you're learning anything because oh, you're yeah. always surrounded by people who are, who know more than you. Mm-hmm. So you're surrounded by your upperclassmen and you're like, oh my God, I don't know that. I feel like I'm just struggling. I don't know anything. When you see that old wax up and you go, holy crap, that was awful. And you see wow. where you've gone. It's like, 
it's it's really makes you it's it makes you feel good because you can actually now see the fruits of your labor and what you know you can do now versus what you thought was amazing then. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That's a great. I have a resident with me who through the AACD, and I had him do some wax ups right in the beginning. Actually, using composite and stuff. We're finishing up his program. It would be fun to pull those out and compare it to where, yeah. where he was. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. It's it's um, an impressive change before and after kind of idea. Yeah, that's that's great. So, where when did you make the pivot from going wanting to go into ortho and then going into pros? What was that about? Yeah, there there was a prosthodontist uh, named Tim Butson. And uh, when I was in my third, fourth year, you know, I kind of got through a lot of my requirements. So I was given some larger cases, right? Like here, give, give them this. This is a little more complex. And then they assigned me this prosthodontist as my instructor. So he would just kind of sit with me. And he was a military guy. And he would just sit there in the assistance chair and just tell me like stories from his military days, which were mostly um, like hilarious or inappropriate. Like, and then he would say, I mean, this is great. You should do pros. And I go, I'm, I'm going ortho, but he would, he kept throwing it in like your skills, you should do pros. Like you're going to, you would do great in pros. And as I looked into how many students in my class were applying to ortho and, you know, perio and all of the other disciplines, nobody was doing pros. Right. And I did enjoy what I was doing and I really enjoyed the immediate gratification. I mean, you can make great changes in ortho, but it takes you, you know, 18 months. Right. We can make changes. You and I can make a change on a patient in one appointment that'll have them in tears because yep. it's a before and after. So I actually did listen to him and look into it and uh, decided to go pros because of his influence. And you just happened to be at like the world caliber pros program place and the, you know, and how fortunate was that? That was, I mean, it was fortunate. It was also maybe the reason why a lot of students don't go to pros is because you could at the university of Washington, when I was there at five o'clock, you look across the way to the ortho clinics, lights are off, doors are closed. Nobody's around. It never mattered what time you were at the school. It could be midnight. There's always the light on in the pros lab and always students in there working and you go, Hmm, club ortho or (laughs) pros. But but you're right. It was uh, it was a remarkable program, and I'm so fortunate to be at the school and be accepted into it because it has churned out some amazing clinicians and amazing educators. I mean, that place is really back in the day, and it's getting back to its former stature with Van Ramos as the as the director. But it went through a heyday for a while. That was like it was the way the program was designed, but it was also who was selecting the people to come in. You know, Ralph Udalis and John Townsend and these people had an, a knack for picking people that they saw some potential in from all around the world mm-hmm. that would go on to do amazing things to help the profession of dentistry. So, I mean, hats off to those guys for designing the program and, and finding those students. How many classmates did you have in your cross program? There was just one other classmate and I. There was just oh, two of right? us. Yeah. Who's, who's your classmate? Uh, his name was Michael Yeh. And Michael Ye came from Taiwan. Ye Yu was his real name, but Michael Ye is, was his chosen American name. And he'd already done a PROS program in Taiwan. So here, here I am now. I look and I have one classmate because normally it's three to possibly four. And all of a sudden, this guy's already done a PROS program. I'm like, oh my God, Like, what have I, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> right. No um, doubt. So it's hard when there's only two of you. I'll tell you, it's all your lit reviews you will get called out. You can't hide behind anyone. 
You can't. No, you got to read. You got to do all the work. You can't say, I'm going to play the odds here. There's three people. I'm not going to, you know, you read these articles and I'll read these articles and we'll just, we'll make it organic in our conversations. No, you're reading them all. How much more work from undergrad to your PROS program? 100% more work, 200% more work? It was more work, but it was completely different. It was, it was a ton of, of lab work, which I love. So that, that was fun for me. And you're sitting around listening to music and you're, you're talking dentistry all day long to people who have the same passion. I mean, that was, that's amazing to me. And then it's just a ton of reading, which was also a different one. So it was a different workload. It was really heavy, but heavy in a completely different way. So yeah, hundred percent change in pace. And that was three-year program, correct? Correct. Correct. When you're finishing up your program. Well, were you practicing dentistry at the same time? Because some people oh, got moonlight a little bit. No, in our program, um, there I don't remember anybody moonlighting. We did moonlighting, but as technicians. Okay. We would we would do provisionals and diagnostic waxing, and we would do things like that. Uh, I remember one one time I got to so uh, we had a lot of our outside education from John and Frank. And, and just for um, those who are listening, that's uh, you may have heard of John Coyce and Frank Spear. These are a couple of names and in dentistry. If you haven't heard of them, you're really in big trouble, but continue <laughs> on. Yeah. So, so they were Vince Kolkich senior and Dave, like all of these people in the Northwest that, that have really influenced all of us. Um, they were our out of house faculty. And, and I remember one time, John, he would pick grad students that would come down and he would be prepping a full mouth. You know, you know, that the more teeth you prep, you actually spend maybe more time making the temps. So he would bring in a, he would bring in a grad student to do his provisionals. He would give you the, he would give you the shell and it would be relined. And then you would actually do all of the finishing polishing, you know, get the margins, give it back to him, try it in. So that was kind of fun to be able to work under somebody like, you know, like John, it was like a real special experience. I can't imagine. How do I get someone to come in and make my provisionals for me, Greg? Where do I go? Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Oh God. Would that be a, would that be a blessing or what? I love provisionals. I want somebody to come in and pack cord for me and give anesthetic. That's the thing I want. I'd hire I'll that. I'll take that person. too. You know, I, I like making provisionals. I'm so damn tired after working the case. That's, yeah. that's my True. problem. I'm, I'm too old to make provisionals now. I'm tired. True. I need a nap. I need a nap between prep and nap. <laughs> I got to figure that out. I don't know. So when you're, when you're getting close to like graduation or where were you when you're like, okay, now I got to go like do this for a living. How, how did you come around on that? So Seattle, Washington, which is where university of Washington, you know, all the programs are is very saturated with prosthodontists. When I was in my grad program, I was the only American student, right? It's a very, it was a heavily international uh, program, but a lot of people that had gone through the program, like they go, Seattle, it's great. I've been here this long. It's great. And I'm going to stay. So the market in Seattle for prosthodontists is like very high. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, well, why would I stay in Seattle? It doesn't make sense. So I grew up in the Northwest and I thought, you know, Portland you know, is similar to Seattle and they don't have a pros program in Oregon. And they, you know, right. the only one in the Northwest is up at Seattle. So I was going to leave the city just because it didn't make sense to stay. And uh, it was in my third year and I had no plans, right? But that was just my mindset. And in my last year, I had come down from one of our um, seminars and there was a note on my lab bench that said, uh, Dr. Spear called, can you call him back? Which for me was interesting because although he was a faculty, out of house faculty, I wasn't the guy that would bust his balls to come lecture to us, right? There was somebody else that would call him and say, you know, can you come lecture to us? Can we come to your office? 
right? right? Just to pester them. But that wasn't me. So to have a message there was like, what did I do? What does he want? Yeah, what, yeah I'm in trouble. So I called back to the office and I, I said, you know, is he, and he wasn't there. He was out teaching somewhere. And I said, but do you, do you know what this is in regards to? And they said, I don't really know, but I know that he got off the phone with an endodontist and then went and asked for your information. And so the endodontist that he was on the phone with is a guy that I knew very well when he was in school. And so I immediately picked up the phone and said, Hey, <laughs> his name was Ted pilot. I said, Ted, uh, you just were speaking with Frank. I said, what were you guys talking about? And my, did my name come up? And he's like, yeah, he goes that he was looking for somebody and he was interested in bringing you into the practice, but he, he was under the impression that you were leaving, that you weren't staying. And he, he says, well, I said, I'm sure that if you spoke with him, he might stay. And so that was, that's why he called. He wanted to know if I might be interested in practicing with him. And I mean, talk about your head exploding. Yeah. Here's the guy that is revered in the grad program. And now he's, he's singled me out to come in and, and practice alongside him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, let's right. pinch me. Let's, what, what do I got to do? But it was probably a three month process before we made it work, before we decided that it was a good fit because he had been through a couple of other associates that didn't work out. Right. You know, he, he yep. of course didn't work out. So yep. you know how hard it is. Where else was my associate? That didn't work out. But that makes right, sense, right? right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, 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 I can, I could barely stand to do a sharecast with him. Yeah, I, I couldn't get off soon enough. Uh, so he wanted to make sure it worked, and so I, I would go in there and and I would be in their staff meetings, and I took Bob Winter was in the practice at the same time, so I would take their call, and I kind of did. We used to in the practice have a a clinical psychologist come in and run the staff meetings. Oh, who As was you that? Know, I remember this. Um, the, the, Brian DeRoche. Yeah, was, Brian DeRoche. Yeah, yeah. And so Brian would come in and, you know, there was personality profiling. So you knew how everybody in the practice kind of functioned mm-hmm. and you knew what their strengths were and where they struggled. And, and it made the team better. And it was amazing. It did. But what it really also did was it pulled all the underlying emotional bullshit that in an office and it yep. brought it to the surface and cleaned it up. So that wasn't dragging anything down. It was really kind of forward thinking to have that type of a design, but I came in and did those. And it was three months into it before we said, you know, it's, it's gotta be mutually beneficial for both of us Mm because he wanted to focus on teaching and I needed a place to practice, but I also wanted to focus on learning from this individual. And so it it had to be a win-win and we wanted to make sure that we all did our due diligence that if we were going to do it, it's going to work. Yeah. And, you know, here we are 20 some years later. And I think Frank and I had one, one time that was a misunderstanding where we, we got into a little bit of a debate and it was a, it was like you said, it was a scheduling conflict that I was supposed to be teaching a class with him. And I was booked to be uh, teaching something on the outside, something on my own. And uh, it was because it was an added class. And when they added this class in, they didn't check with my schedule. So once we understood where the problem came from, then it was like, okay. But otherwise, it's been a fantastic relationship. I got a question and I'll tell you a story. Question, when you're in your grad process program, sometimes when there's like homegrown talent or homegrown um, institutions, people don't don't recognize the their value and brilliance. So you got Frank and John that are are right there. 
uh, John, uh, Frank in Seattle, John in Tacoma. But in your process, like as an undergrad dental student, did you guys know who John Coyce or Frank Spear was or only when you got into the PROS program? Only when we got into PROS did we know who these icons in the area were, right? Vince Kokich, Ward Smalley, Frank, John. It was, I don't know, they didn't shield us from them, but they had enough other things to focus on. Yeah for us as a dental student, that, that these, those people never were on the radar. I, I think that's changed now. I think that in dental school, they're exposing their students to more information, not just maybe what they contain in the school, but broader than that. Because I know Spear Education, we have a huge online component, and we're now in quite a number of dental schools to provide our content for their students. But back in the day, no, I didn't have any idea who these individuals were. So I got to tell you a couple of stories. So first one, um, I saw Frank for the first time and it was probably 93 at the Chicago Midwinter meeting. And I went with my dental partner at the time, Monica Zebert, who was this uh, wonderful dentist classmate of mine from Michigan. We both moved to Chicago and we had both done residencies and we scratched a couple of nickels together. And we bought this really tiny practice on the west side of Chicago. And we go to the midwinter meeting and it was the first time I had ever seen dentistry look like teeth. And Frank did this presentation and it blew me away. I mean, oh, I'm like, I, I was just stunned. I, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting in the auditorium. I was floored. I'm like, oh my God, this is beautiful. This this isn't this isn't dentistry. He's recreated teeth, right? And so we walk out into the uh, into the hallway outside the auditorium afterwards. And I look at Monica and I say, "That's what I want to do." And Monica looks at me and she says, "I'm applying to med school." <laughs> <laughs> because because her uncle and her brother were prosthodontists, and she knew what it was going to take to be able to do that type of dentistry. And I was completely completely naive. I had no clue. I've been out for four or five years, and I'm just like, ah, you just you know, you just learn to do some good dentistry, find a good lab. And, uh, and sure enough, she uh, she took the MCATs and she went off down to Duke and she uh, became a physician internist. And uh, here I am, uh, you know, still trying to be able to make you know teeth uh, dentistry look like teeth. So, That's a great story. Yeah, true story. So that was my biggest influence in dentistry was uh, was uh, seeing Frank. And then my second story was, so I became obsessed with Frank and with Bob Winter. Um, Bob presented the following year, um, and both of them had gotten the Gordon Christensen Award. And Bob Winter had been at Marquette Dental School, and where I have a lot of friends and colleagues. Mm, yeah. In fact, Mo Monica's brother, who was a prosthodontist, he said, hey, Bob Winter's coming to the midwinter. You got to check him out. So got in there. There was like room for like 40 people in this little room. And Bob blew us away with single central crowns. This is back in 94 yep. um, when there was still PFMs and, and all that stuff and some early ceramic stuff. But nonetheless, I said, I got to go out and see Frank. So I took every penny I didn't have, put it on my credit card. And I went to Frank's <laughs> first course out in his, out in his new office. And um, we sat in the consultation room around the oval table. Frank had his little um, carousel projector screen thing where the drops yep. in. I don't know if you're ever seen it. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and Bob was trying in some veneers when we were there. And it was one of the most important two days of my life, just being in that environment and just being that close to Frank and the information he was sharing and seeing Bob as he was working and seeing the dedication, it was so it was transformative to me as a young dentist to be able to, sure. um, you know, take take that course. And I'll never forget it. It was it was it's you know it's so so fundamental to the way that I practice and the the way that I think and everything along the way. 
It's, it's interesting, you know, as, as a grad student, I didn't know these people, but in as, as a grad student, I did, I, they came in and they gave us information and I'll tell you one of the things. So I have a very similar story about Frank's influence. And so it was serendipitous that I, I got the offer to, to come in to work with him. He used to do a course called the practice of excellence. And it was the way he's designed his practice and how he treats patients. And it's like the entire process from how you bring the patient in and how your staff functions. And it was like, I was in grad school and I'm taking like notes, like crazy going, yes, that's what I, I want to have my practice just like that. Like everything resonated with me. I'm like, that's, that's the only way to do it. So then years later, well, a year later, when I get the opportunity, it was already kind of set up because I loved the way he was practicing, the way the practice was designed. And I'd taken lab courses from Bob as a grad student. We would go like he'd have technicians and these guys were so generous, Frank, John, Bob, they were so generous in that if they taught a course where they had pain dentists come in and they had a vacancy in the seats, they would invite the grad students, no charge. Oh, that's awesome. I remember taking a a course with a bunch of technicians taught by Bob on how to, you know, layer ceramic and porcelain margins and all of those things to be able to work alongside both of those guys and and to continue to do it today has been pretty phenomenal. No doubt. So the two millimeter vertical cutback on the anterior of your PFM, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So you don't get those shadows. I, I don't know. Some days I think I should have been a lab technician. I used to take lab courses from my lab technician in Chicago area. He'd bring in Bob Winter and Don Cornell and uh, European yeah. lab technicians. And I just sit there and I just, I, I never put any in anyone's mouth, but I just learned the layering techniques. And it's been invaluable for me when I was talking to my technicians and understanding what they need and why they need the space and where they need the space and why the margin's got to be the way it is and stuff. I know there's a lot of dental schools where you do no technical work. And and maybe as you get into, you know, more CAD CAM dentistry, it's not, it's not as important, but I agree with you and that the benefit being a clinician, the benefit of knowing the other side and knowing how it works is it's, it's so beneficial that I can be a better clinician because I know the other side and I can communicate with my technician at a different level because I've done the work. It carries over to being a, a clinician. If you know how that side of it lives, I still think you need, you need to know how the digital workflow happens and you need to yeah, know absolutely. the shortcomings of it again, yep. to be a better clinician. So it's probably still true today that you need that other side. You need the knowledge at least. I think understanding analog makes you a better digital dentist. And I think today, understanding digital makes you a better analog dentist. I think there's, I think both of them are so critical to be successful if you're, you know, if you want to, I don't even know if you have to do high end. I just think it's all, it's all interwoven, but I know for me, my, any digital stuff I do is better because I understand analog, how it's going to work. So, you know, for the young dentist, I think it's a super challenge because, you know, everything's being pushed towards digital, but without the, without the analog experience. You know, you can, you can have a perfect case planned, you bring it in digitally and all of a sudden you put it in the mouth and all of a sudden it, it's not looking what you thought it would look like. And now you got to pick up your handpiece and start changing things. And that's yep. going to be a challenge, I think, for some of them. At the end of the day, we're still analog dentists because yeah, I yeah. still have to work on the patient and put something in the patient's mouth. So yeah, I yeah. still have to have that skill set of the analog world. And you're right, whether you do it in the digital workflow or you do it in the analog workflow, you'd still, at the end of the day, you're going to have to, it's rare that I ever get anything yeah. back <laughs> where it just goes in and I go, there you uh, go. Perfect. 
I, I have not had that day yet. And there's always going to be some touch-ups and, uh, you know, and I, but I, when I was young though, I wouldn't do those touch-ups and I didn't see it. But now as I've learned and I see right. it, then I see where I got to make those adjustments. But as a young dentist, I just, I'm like, good enough. <laughs> yeah. If it looked good to my lab guy, it's good enough for me. That, that concept of you only see what you know, uh, yeah. is huge, but it, it affects, it affects your work. It affects your treatment planning. I only know what I've been taught and I only see what I know, which means that my window is closed unless I start yep. to learn things at a different level. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Greg Kinzer. I hope you don't mind that we geeked out a little bit and started talking about laboratory work and all that type of stuff, but I really enjoyed my conversation with Greg, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. Now, you know, don't forget that DOT has so many other great learning opportunities from our Wine and Unwind. These are our monthly webinars where we engage real-time with our viewers as we bring in leaders throughout the dental industry. We take your questions and just learn from the best how to make our dentistry and our dental practices better. We also have our monthly coffee and donut study club mentoring sessions, which I just hosted this morning. And we spent about an hour and a half sort of reviewing some treatment plans and talking about cases and some other things that we do in our dental, daily dental practices. We also have our live virtual workshops where we cover everything from treating the worn dentition, which we're going to be doing this March, March 22. So at the end of March, that'll be coming up to full bonded veneers, to prepping teeth for porcelain veneers, so many topics that we cover in these live virtual workshops that you just don't want to miss. Of course, we have our blogs and we have our endless selection of hands-on pre-recorded technique courses to improve the quality of the dentistry for you and your patients. And also in 2022, Dr. Jim McKee, who is an expert on TMJ, he's going to be giving us some courses and those will be dropping into our DOT uh, website soon. So if you enjoyed the ShareCast, please share it with your friends and your colleagues. And until next time, I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley, yours for better dentistry. Thanks so much for listening to the ShareCast. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe to our ShareCast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're loving the ShareCast, share it with your colleagues. And please rate it and leave us a review. Also, if you want access to fantastic clinical, managerial, and leadership tips to help you in your practice of dentistry, check us out at dothandson.com or find me on Instagram at HartleyDDS. This episode was created with special help from Clear O'Neill. It was edited by Ashley Dixon Ellison and with original music by Chris Peterson. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley, yours for better dentistry. Mm-hmm.